Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening where we continue our reflections into Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, a study that has had us reflecting into so many different topics and how those topics, theological topics, apply to our everyday life. Now, from time to time, I get questions that are very specific to what I have talked about, and sometimes I get a question two or three times if I've already answered it, but that's okay, uh, because sometimes we we don't have the ability or capacity to uh, listen to each and every program. So I will go back and answer one particular question, and it's a question regarding really the Holy Spirit and how we read sacred scripture. Uh, and the question was posed, what does it mean to be in the Spirit? Well, to be in the Spirit is to be what? But in God. We have to remember that when you talk about the Spirit, you're talking about the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit is the love shared between the Father and the Son. Consequently, to be in the Holy Spirit is to be in the very life and love of God. Remember that most fundamental definition of the Trinity, love given, love received, and love shared. Love given from the Father, love received from the Son, and love shared in the Holy Spirit. So in the Trinity, you have this unity, but a unity that is in distinction, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So to be in the Spirit is, yes, to be in the Holy Spirit, in the love shared between the Father and the Son, but also at the same time to be in God, right? To be in God. So as the question has the context of being in the Spirit when interpreting Scripture, it is to really invoke the presence of the Holy Spirit, invoke the presence of God when you go to interpret sacred Scripture. We cannot be good interpreters of Scripture if we are not entering into the very dynamism of the author of sacred Scripture, that is, love itself. Remember, the Holy Spirit inspired sacred Scripture. This we know from the sacred text itself. So if we are going to interpret the sacred text as we ought, we are to really enter into the author himself. And we can do that because the author is the Holy Spirit. We see John, who is caught up in the Spirit. Right? He is caught up in God, and he sees, he sees this vision, this mystical vision. And I emphasized see because Really, we can only be in God, in the Holy Spirit, if we are pure, huh? Matthew chapter 5, verse 8 reads what? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So to be in the Spirit also includes to have a pure heart, to have a clean heart. Remember that the Greek kathados means single-mindedness or single-heartedness or this singular focus on God. This is why when we go to interpret sacred scripture, we have to set ourselves apart from the world that we might enter deeper into the sacred text, okay? That being said, let us go back into 
Paul's first letter to the church of Corinth. And in doing so, remember what we've talked about last week, because we are in chapter 7. And if we're going to appreciate what chapter 7 is all about, which is a chapter concerning marriage, we have to remember what chapter 6 was all about, and especially those last few verses and that last verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 reads, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Glorify God in your body. Okay, so who we are in our bodies, in our sexuality, is very important for Paul. And so with everything that we talked about last week in mind, most especially how our sexuality is a gift from God and serves a purpose to glorify God, we enter into chapter 7. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and I will go ahead and read verses 1 to 11. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is well for a man not to touch a woman, but because of the temptation to immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not rule over her own body, but the husband does. There is that language of the body, right? Likewise, the husband does not rule over his own body, but the wife does. Do not refuse one another, except perhaps by agreement for a season, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, lest Satan tempt you through lack of self-control. I say this by way of concession, not of command. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own special gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows I say that it is well for them to remain single as I do, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. To the married I give charge, not I but the Lord that the wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, let her remain single or else be reconciled to her husband and that the husband should not divorce his wife. Okay, what's going on here? Well, again, as I noted, this whole chapter is about Paul giving spiritual direction on marriage, celibacy, and widowhood. And to use spiritual direction, it is always to remember that all of us are in need of a spiritual director. What does that mean? Well, someone who guides you deeper into the heart of Christ, helping you discern uh, the spiritual life, helping you better understand the many situations that you find yourself in and how those situations can draw you deeper into the heart of Christ. We might think we have it all figured out, and maybe you are someone who is on the right path, <laughs> heading towards Christ. But we all have blind spots, my friends. We all have blind spots. Going back to heading down that path, maybe you're in a car and you've got all your lights on, it's dark, and you know, you're, you're heading in the right direction. But what you don't know is that your back right light isn't working, okay? And so you need someone to tell you that you're heading in the right direction, 
but oh, by the way, your back right light isn't working. How would you know if someone didn't tell you? And in time, you're going to need that back right light, huh? It, it serves a purpose. So you need someone to tell you, hey, you've got a back right light not working and you need to get that squared away. That's what a spiritual director does. So St. Paul right, was the great spiritual director in the early church, showing everyone where their blind spots were at, if you will. And in so doing, bringing people into, once again, the heart of Christ. All right, how about this opening verse? I mean, my friends, these verses are rich. <laughs> these are rich. So we're going to work through these verses and appreciate certainly the historical context and how Paul's words transcend time and how they can be applied today. Okay, this opening phrase, now concerning, is actually a very important phrase. It might not seem like it is, but it is, <laughs> because it is a phrase that is really a reoccurring expression found uh, all throughout the letter. And it highlights the fact that Paul has been receiving very specific questions. Now, how about this phrase, it is not well for a man not to touch a woman. Not to touch a woman is a euphemism, huh? Meaning not to have sexual relations. That's very important because touch and sexual relations, 2,000 years later, we would definitely interpret that differently. And this is, again, why it's so important to get into the Greek text, to get into the literal sense, to get into the mind of the author, because otherwise, to put it quite simply, my friends, our interpretation would come up short. It just would. So it's very important to get into these verses, especially here, the Greek, so that we might appreciate what's going on here in the mind of Paul, and especially in this case, the Church of Corinth. So you have a euphemism here, meaning not to have sexual relations. Paul treats the slogan as a half-truth, if you will. Why? Because we know that Paul will uphold voluntary celibacy a few verses later. So he does not say that the statement is utterly false, but he says, considering the currency of, here we have that Greek word again, pornea, so considering the currency of pornea, immorality, in the surrounding culture, which, again, we have already discussed, the Christian who is married should find sexual fulfillment with one's own spouse. He is not saying that one should marry to avoid fornication. This is an interpretation that a number of scholars have embraced, ultimately judging Paul's theology of marriage to be, in the end, very negative and one-sided. It goes against the whole theology of Paul, which we will explain later if not in this program, subsequent programs. So for the Apostle Paul, marriage is what? A charism, a gift of God, as much as celibacy is. The one who marries does well. As the context indicates here, Paul is telling married couples that they should not abstain from relations lest they be tempted to seek satisfaction outside of their marriage. One of the early church fathers, Origen, in his commentary on this passage, sees these verses as a caution, not merely for one's personal benefit, but especially as a loving service to the other. 
huh? A loving service to the other, lest the other be tempted to adultery. Paul buttresses this by saying what? That the husband should fulfill his duty toward his wife, and likewise the wife toward her husband. And so Paul indicates there's no warrant for one spouse deciding unilaterally, we could say, to abstain from normal marital relations for spiritual reasons. It is, as we are to interpret, a mutual authority, right? Which means that the authority is not absolute and should always be exercised with thoughtfulness and love. As one commentary puts it, Paul's emphasis, it must be noted, is not on you owe me, but I owe you. We might interpret these verses as the you owe me, not as the I owe you. And I think that's very important to appreciate as well. And this whole discussion should really be caught up in Paul's treatment on marriage in Ephesians 5. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. And what I want to do is read verses 21 to 33. Verses 21 to 33. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. As the church is subject to Christ, so let wives also be subject in everything to their husbands. Okay. Now, if you were to stop there, if all you were to read were verses 21 to 24, that would come across as incredibly chauvinistic of Paul. I mean, what are you saying here, Paul? Are wives to submit to their husbands in everything? Do they have a say? Do they have a voice? Well, what else does Paul say here? Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Verse 27, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Even so, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no man ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is a profound one. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. If we are going to understand the beauty of marriage in all of its glory, we are to appreciate the role of the husband. Huh? <laughs> Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. What is going on there? Is not Paul calling on all husbands to sacrifice their lives for their wives? <laughs> Everything, holding nothing back, entering into that ultimate definition of Christian love, that enough is never enough until it gives everything. 
if you want to put verses 21 to 24 in its proper context, then put those verses in the light of verse 25. Because as a married man, I will tell you this, my friends, and many of you know this out there, but I will say it anyways. When the husband sacrifices everything for his wife, how will the wife respond to that sacrifice? Well, does not love beget more love? She will want to sacrifice in return. She will receive that love, and in receiving that love, she will respond to that love because it is a love that is life-giving. huh? Paul wants all husbands to see that essentially you have an authority, an authority that is rooted in Christ, and what's more, an authority that is life-giving in the sacrifice. And one thing we know from the cross is that the Son of God reveals something of the life of the Trinity on the cross, primarily that love is sacrificial. So when you talk about marriage, especially as Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 7, okay, emphasizing the various aspects of the conjugal act, it's just not about the eros, that human erotic love, but how that in its raw material points towards agape, that divine sacrificial love. Again, I know we talked about this in great detail in our series on Theology of the Body, but something to be integrated into this particular uh, evening, because if we are going to really understand what Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians 7, we have to appreciate the larger context of what he has already established in Ephesians 5, Ephesians 5 verses 21 to 33. And there's so much more to say in those 12, 13 verses I'm just going to direct you to that series on Theology of the Body. You can go to my website at joholcraft.org, go to the link Listen Now, and go to the heading on Special Topics, and you'll find it there. Uh, we spent two years on Theology of the Body, and certainly we engaged the minutia of those 12, 13 verses. But again, for our study here, it is important to bring that in, insofar as to appreciate the dynamism of the mutual self-gift that is so life-giving to every marriage. Every marriage. All right. All that being said, as it relates to chapter 7, there is a clear mutuality that will run through this entire chapter. As I was just noting, <laughs> the husband is not lord of the wife, as was often assumed in the culture, but her equal in mutual belonging. Was Eve created from the feet of Adam so that Adam might stomp on her? No, <laughs> of course not. But from his side, as they work side by side in building up their families as the Salta Society, a domestic outpost, if you will, to what the Trinitarian life is all about, that love given, love received, and love shared. Now, as it relates to verses 3 to 4 that we, that we read in opening, Paul, very much like Jesus, is establishing what? A new counter-cultural and revolutionary equality between husband and wife. This is a very important principle to remember later when Paul speaks about the husband being head of the wife in chapter 11. 
So as we go to Ephesians 5, we will probably go there when we get to chapter 11. How about verse 5? Do not deprive each other. What is that all about? Well, do not deprive each other means that one should not refuse the other, nor should they abstain for extended periods of time, lest their lack of self-control, as Paul puts it, tempt them to seek satisfaction elsewhere. He does, however, allow for abstinence by mutual consent for a time to be free for prayer. It is significant, my friends, that Paul expects prayer to accompany periods of mutually agreed abstinence. In fact, we could rightfully say it is the only purpose of abstinence that uh, Paul envisions. Why? Because prayer, my friends, can sublimate, if you will, the sexual drive and bring about a deeper spiritual union. Maybe for some of us, this is really hard for us to understand. I mean, who prays before they enter into conjugal love, right? But what Paul wants us to understand is, well, in point of fact, that's the very thing we are to do because it enriches, it enriches the encounter, the consummation. We should probably take a step back here and appreciate a passage in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, we read this verse, let us make man in our image. Let us make man in our image. Okay, so us, there's a plurality to God, right? The Trinitarian life of God. What's interesting is the next time you see image in the sacred text, and really the last time you see it in this context is Genesis chapter 5, verse 3, when Adam and Eve are imaging God and they give birth to a newborn, right? They are imaging God in two becoming one, they create a third. What's going on here? Well, <laughs> does this not bring us back to the Trinity? As the Father and the Son become one, they give life to a third, right? They give life to a third. So just as man and woman become one and open to life, they bear life, and number three is born, <laughs> they leave divine footprints to the Trinity. When two become one, in more ways than one, do we reflect God most profoundly in the Trinity. Most profoundly in the Trinity. I know this is a very rich image, but an image nonetheless that is quintessential to appreciating the importance of the role God has to play in all of our consummative acts. St. John Paul II talks about how that consummative act is a sharing in the very blissfulness of God. I mean, how provocative is that? In, in the truest sense of the word, you know, we use the word provocative, provoking. It should provoke something within us that we might see something differently, that we might see something anew. I mean, have you ever thought about that before? how in the consummative act we actually share in the very life of God, if the supreme vision of God is to experience his life and his love, and above all else, 
the joy that properly belongs to that life and love, then why should not that one act reflect right, what he created? I mean, my friends, he created sex, right? He created everything. So sex isn't removed from that. And in point of fact, it's a sharing in the very life of God. Once we put this in context of the blissfulness of the very Trinitarian life, of the joy of the Trinity, I think we can uh, begin to see and appreciate, my dear friends, hopefully, why the consummative act is a sharing in the very life of God. So amen to that. Two shall become one flesh. Now, it's interesting in verse 5, we read, uh, lest Satan tempt you through lack of self-control. So married couples may abstain temporarily from relations, as this creates opportunity for prayer and spiritual enrichment, what we were just talking about. But again, Paul warns (laughs) that abstinence should not be unnecessarily protracted. Otherwise, Satan could manipulate the circumstances for evil. Right? What is Satan busy about but hijacking, parroting what rightfully belongs to God? You and I both know if there's any one thing that he is busy hijacking today, it is who we are in our sexuality. If you're to go back to the Garden of Eden, what do you find? Well, what you find is that he was subtle. The Hebrew there translates as the exploitation of nakedness. So from the From the very beginning of the fall, my friends, the one thing, among other things, that Satan has been exploiting, it is nakedness. Now, I should say something else here. Catholic teaching does permit married couples for just and serious reasons to refrain periodically from sexual relations in the interest of child spacing and family planning, certainly within the Catholic Church. And Another thing I've talked about before in Theology of the Body is natural family planning how periodic continence can promote spiritual discipline and self-mastery for both husband and wife. And so, yeah, Paul here in this phrase, agreement for a season, is certainly encouraging and understanding the importance of periodic continence uh, for spiritual enrichment. All right, how about uh, verse 9 here? But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. Aflame with passion. What is he saying here? Well, marriage is an appropriate station for those unable to restrain their passions. But that does not mean marriage should be pursued for the sole reason as an outlet for lust. No. What have we already talked about? Marriage is a gift, right? Marriage is a gift, a holy gift and spiritual gift, and it should be seen as such that we might appreciate uh, the giftedness that we share in in the very life of the Trinity. Okay, I'm looking up at the clock and we are out of time. We will wrap up our reflections with these verses 1 to 11 in our time tomorrow. If you have any questions, comments, thoughts, observations, please do not hesitate to email me at jholljmj at yahoo.com, or as always, you can go to my website at joeholcraft.org. Right in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. 
Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.